Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Los Angeles in the early 1980s will forever be the coolest place on earth. And I'm not talking about the punk or hardcore scene. It was the ska scene that kicked every other genre's ass. And at the forefront of it was the Untouchables, a group of the best-dressed, scooter-loving mods that played an amazing combination of ska, reggae, and northern soul. Our guest today is Chuck Askernice, the founding lead singer of the band. Chuck played in the group from its formation in late 1980 until 1990, and then rejoined in 2009. Since his initial departure from the band, he's been working as an on-set property master in TV and film. We talked to him about The Untouchables and about his post-ska life in Hollywood. I feel like for me, ska, you know, as much of a cliche as it is, ska for me really does start in the 90s. It was really interesting to go back and talk to somebody like Chuck who's doing it well before then. Mike Vanilli had a record by the Untouchables, Live and Let Dance. And it was only on record, which was weird at the time because people were just all in on CDs and records were going out of fashion. But Mike had this LP and occasionally we'd put it on and I thought it was really awesome, but it definitely had like the sound of it being a different era. My son's second grade teacher grew up down in LA. And when we were doing this, gonna do this interview, Asked her, hey, did you ever go see The Untouchables? And she was like, yeah, all the time. I was like, we're going to interview the singer. And she was like, no way, that's amazing. So I thought it was an interesting crossover between my son's nice second grade teacher and my weird ska punk background. I think it just goes to show you how big The Untouchables were. If you were into live music in the early, mid 80s, you definitely were seeing The Untouchables, even if you weren't a straight up like ska fan or mod. They were just all over the place in L.A. I'm really curious about who you were before the Untouchables and and how you met them and what you were into before, you know, you guys got into the ska scene and stuff. Well, okay, sure. So I'll start by prefacing. My brother was our original bass player. Um, It was, you know, Clyde Grimes, Jerry Miller, myself. Um, It was Rob on Lamphon and then Perry Ellswit, who we met later on. But uh, the other guys I, I knew... Um, going into this so we, we my brother and I played little league with Clyde and his brother Marty and we grew up skateboarding together and surfing our parents were friends before we were ever born and uh, my parents moved from the east coast 
out to here back in, I guess, uh, early 50s. So, um, and to the LA area. Um, let's see. So, um, yeah, I uh, was a skateboarder. Uh, Marty and I skateboarded on the Z Flex team, which was uh, like part of Jay Adams and uh, broke off from the Zephyr team back in the day. We skated the original pools and skate parks and skated with Alva and Dogtown and those guys. Um, then uh, I just have to say in 79, I went to school, went to college and uh, I went up to Oregon for a year and uh, didn't, didn't do so well in school. I was into skiing and stuff like that and just came back, uh, went to Santa Monica City College and then dropped out. At that time, it got into going to clubs, and um, that's when I was introduced to um, kind of new wave and and um, dance music. Um, but I'll have to say, before that, in uh, in high school, um, I was in 1974. I uh, I had a teacher who was my photography teacher, and he got tickets to go see Bob Marley and the Whalers at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And uh, he invited me to come with him and his girlfriend. So that was uh, my first real introduction to, maybe, I guess it was totally my first introduction to reggae. Um, before that, I was into what my sisters loved, um, soul music, James Brown, uh, you know, um, Stevie Wonder, I grew up with, with the Jackson Five and all that, um, and then my brother was into rock, which we listened to a lot of different stuff. So varied stuff, everywhere from Led Zeppelin to Yes to The Who. So when you guys are all friends before the Untouchables is a band, you guys hung out at the Starwood, and people thought you were a band. But you weren't a band. You guys were just friends. Some of you guys had been friends for a long time. Some were a little bit newer. Yeah, we met. We met uh, Carrie along that time, and also Kevin um, Long was one of the originals with us. Um, we met him through hanging out at clubs and dancing, probably around the Starwood time. Fast Freddie was a DJ, a local DJ. He'd go every Monday night and spin soul. Um, records and we would go and dance and there'd be dance contests and that kind of thing and we would hit the floor and dance on so at that point and you were into the soul music stuff but they they played two-tone scott and you guys were already into that stuff you know it just was sort of kicking on in i'd have to say more of the blue beat and the reggae and then and then the two-tone sort of came in after that i wasn't even really aware of it until um kevin turned me on to the specials first that was uh my introduction to it and then Terry as well was into more of like the jam and members and flash as well of course but yeah then then we found out more about the two-tone stuff you guys would get together just because you like music so much and you wanted to dance and kind of dress up and, and everything like that right that was really kind of the the gist of the starwood days is that right yeah yeah dressing getting sharp going to clubs and so Fast Freddy said to you guys one day that you got, you know, you guys should be a band or he thought you were a band. Yeah. 
yeah he said you guys should should really start a band there was a local band and i i we mentioned and talked about the box boys and your uh, in the interview with you and they were the predecessors in a local los angeles band um they weren't were not um two-tone they were they were all occasion but they had some jams that were really cool and we would follow them and they would play some local clubs and that's where we were introduced to the on club describe what the on club looked like to somebody who'd never been there because on club is kind of a legendary club yeah it was uh it was a small place it was uh pretty much like built into the side of a, a kind of a rock cliff in silver lake it was on on Sunset Boulevard, but on kind of like in a in an area that you wouldn't expect it to be. Um, was it was out of ways from Hollywood or anywhere else. And um, inside was a kind of a, a dark room, a small small room, small stage, um, black with the O N K L U B on the uh, wall, and. I guess so later we found out from the owner Bob um, who and Howard they, they it was a restaurant Oriental Nights right and so that's where the ON come came from and uh, Bob and Howard decided they thought that they could build a club and that that they could get people there to dance and that was his vision pretty much Howard talked Bob into opening it up to let let him spend some records there certain nights of the week. Yeah, I think Howard found the idea of an, of the club being called Oriental Nights to be tacky. But I, yeah. I think it didn't want to change the name because I think that put the liquor license in jeopardy or something like that. So they abbreviated it sort of like right. to get work around that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah. Howard Parr, he's a, he's a clever guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what happened the first time you went there? If there was a band playing or if it was just DJs? You know, I think it might, there might've been a band. I think it could have been a band called the Rebel Rockers, which was a local reggae band. Um, actually more from Orange County, I believe. Uh, down Dana Point or something like that. But yeah, they... um. They might have been playing that night and to check it out. What actually led to you guys starting a band? I mean, you guys didn't have a ton of musical experience before then, right? Was it just a like, wow, there's so many cool bands happening. We should, let's just try it. No, what what happened was like I was saying, we there was farther and fewer bands playing, and the uh, Box Boys split up, and um, they stopped jamming, and uh, we were like. Kind of left with a void and figured we we really enjoy make, like dancing to dance music. Why don't we try to make it some dance music? And um, my uh, my brother played bass a bit, and Rob was a drummer. He he and Clyde had some experimental kind of new wave band earlier on in high school um, with another guy named Larry Robinson, who is a still a friend of ours, and. Uh, so Clyde was proficient on guitar, and uh, Terry um, played rhythm a bit. So we we just started to jam. We jammed at Clyde's garage, and later we would um, write songs in the attic at my parents' house. And you played your first show at the On Club, right? Um, 
Yeah, we played some parties before that at different house parties and things like that. But yeah, our first gig ever, club gig, was Young Club. Now, as I understand it, Clyde, who was sort of the closest to Howard, mm -hmm. kind of presented the idea and kind of like, it's like, come on, give us a shot. Will you let us play like on a Thursday or something like that? And yeah, and Howard kind of gave in because he really liked Clyde a lot. Yeah, yeah. Clyde and Howard hit it off. And uh, I, we, I think we might have given him a demo tape, maybe like six songs that we had recorded at Larry Robinson's house. And uh, we thought they were, you know, there was something there that maybe it could be fun. So he, he gave us a shot to try. And, that, and I definitely believe it was a Thursday night. We, we were close with the kids on the dance floor, so they came to support us. And most of them were underage, you know as maybe I was just 21, I guess, at the time. This was like early 1980, and I probably just had turned 21. And I know that Bob was kind of skeptical because uh, these were kids that weren't, that, you know, that really weren't allowed to be in where they served alcohol, you know? But when, uh, when he came to see what was happening, there was a long line outside the door and, and uh, Howard was pretty excited and Bob, I guess, was, was uh, you know, taken aback. So that was pretty cool. And um, he said, yeah, these, these kids are cool. Look at them. They're all dressed nice with ties and suits and stuff. I can't stop them from coming in. And once he got inside and things started jamming inside, he really felt the, the, the vibe and had a good time that night, I know. So he wanted us back again. You guys became regulars for a little while at the Young Club? Yeah, we we played, gosh, we played every chance we got. Um, and soon after that, I remember one one time, one of our first big opening gigs, we opened for uh, B-52s at the Palladium two nights. And uh, the first night was, uh, I think it might've been a Friday night we played. And after our, we op our opening set, we went and jammed. We had a set at the On Club two sets, I think, actually. And on our second set, um, Dave and Dave, the, they, I guess they had a side band called the Swollen Monkeys, but they were the horn players for the B-52s at the time. And they uh, came and jammed in our second set with us. And that was the first time ever having horns in our in lineup. How did it go? Did they know your song? Yeah, yeah, no, they just, they just came, kind of fell right in. They're real, real professional and real fun. These guys were really, really great. So that was really cool. Kind of an eye-opening thing to let us give us a, a horn section, something that we hadn't really even thought of at the time. We were more into sort of power ska and power mod rock stuff, you know? When you think back to your on-club days, was there like a favorite show that you either played or saw, you know, a band that played the on-club? Let's see. I saw so many bands, yeah. Um, you know, Kevin, who later became our uh, our guitar player, um, had a band called The Hot Spots, and they were um, just a three-piece band. Uh, Willie McNeil, who actually became our drummer as well, was part of that band, and uh, and, and Kane. Actually, they had a, a singer, um, Tina, so there was four pieces there. Um, and so all three of those guys eventually became untouchables. But yeah, we really did like their sound. They were cool. And Kevin Williams, he's a, a great songwriter and 
which produces stuff as well. Thinking back to being on stage at one of these on club shows and looking out at the audience, what what did the audience look like? <laughs> they looked like uh, mostly young kids, suits and ties, uh, chicks with you know page cuts and mini skirts, um, mostly. 19 to 20, 22, maybe, mostly white kids. It was kind of a contrast to a lot of what was happening in L.A. at the time, though, right? Because it was sort of the quote-unquote scary punk rock time. Yeah, they would every now and then try to come and infiltrate, and there would be some kind of a, a skirmish, you know, between the mods and the punks, and they they wouldn't come back for a while, but yeah. <laughs> We, we didn't really want them in the club, you know. <laughs> but the Ons Club, On Club was a dance club. And that was something that was unique about it because all the bands played dance music. For my book, I interviewed Chris Dowd from Fishbone. I'm sure you remember them from those early days because they were, they came a little after you guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we played gigs with them as well. Yeah. He remembered you guys very fondly. You know, they were big fans of you guys and you guys being on the radio was like very inspirational to them. He told me that watching you guys sort of be, you know, be such a good band and, and having such success to them, you guys were like the ultimate competition. Like you guys were the, the bar they were trying to reach in those early days. You know, we got to We got to get as big as the untouchables. Yeah. What, um, and let me tell you something, what happened uh, around that time in, in 80, late 81 or 82, early 82, um, we got a call to uh, open for X at the Whiskey. And that kind of was a, a big deal for us because it, it really opened a lot of doors. Um, and the story is this, that Billy Zoom called his manager, his name was Jay, and he told Jay that... Uh, I want the Untouchables to open at the Whiskey coming up. I guess it was like a week before the gig. And he hung up. And then Jay calls back, uh, who are the Untouchables? He says, Billy says, quote, unquote, I don't know, but they got scooters. And he hung up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Jay started a search, put a search out to try to find out who we were. And um, they got us to open that, that show. And um, Mario, the owner of the, the whiskey and the Roxy at the time, really, really dug us. And we had a bunch of scooters out front. Kids supported us. And we got a chance to play with X and to a different crowd than we would have, you know. And uh, they, they all seemed to, to dig it. So Mario said that he would like to have us uh, play in a couple weeks at the Roxy and, and check it out and try something. So we did. And um, that that first time at the Roxy was magic. Um, we must have had about a hundred scooters out front on Sunset Boulevard and it like started it caused a traffic jam and it was like a big scene, you know, and uh, packed the club. He had to turn kids away and Mario was so excited about having us. He said, well, you know, I'd like to have you back again. Next time I want to have a, an early show for 18 and under and then have a later set for 21 and over. And we did that and uh, we became, I guess, as it turns out, like one of only a couple of, I guess there was the Doors and I'm not sure who the second was, but we guess we were the third house band ever at the Roxy. Nice. That lasted for a couple of years. We'd play every 
maybe maybe once a month we play two sets. Was that what kind of led to you guys getting these opening slots for some of these bigger bands? Yeah, and it also um, so I guess uh, X's management Jay and uh, Barbara was uh, they were like a two piece uh, management team, and they had um, this guy Clay Rose was their engineer, X's engineer, and so we, one of our first singles we recorded at Ray Manzarek's place. Um, at Cherokee Studios, and uh, Clay was uh, our engineer, so that was cool. We got a chance to record at such a such a big name place. It was pretty great. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Your very first manager was Ramon Estevez, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. For people out there who don't know, that is Emilio Estevez's and Charlie Sheen's brother. Correct. Yeah, one of Martin Sheen's son. Is I guess it's his youngest son. He was a fan. I mean that. How did that come about? So, um, uh, uh, some friends of ours, uh, this girl was um, Ramon's best friend, who was uh, Lee Cartwright. She was a girlfriend of my brother's at the time, back then. And Ramon said, um, it, you know, that he could get us a, a couple, I guess, uh, rap party gigs and maybe see what else there could be out there. And so it was cool. But how that came about was, we um, played Charlie Sheen's birthday party the first time, and then later we played uh, Emilio's birthday party um, at Charlie's house in, at like Point Doom up in Malibu. How was that? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really cool. It was great. Martin, uh, we at the time we had a pretty limited set. I think maybe we had like eighteen songs in our set or something, and. One of them was a ska version of Give Ireland Back to the Irish, the Paul McCartney song. And uh, Martin really, really dug it. And he, he, um, he just, he'd be drinking beer and barbecuing steaks on the barbecue. And he <laughs> said, play that Irish number again. Just play that Irish number again. <laughs> we played it like three times for him. And it was really great. There's a lot of kids there. And we, we'd jump in the pool and go swimming and then jump back up and start playing some more songs and stuff like that. It was, it was a lot of fun. Wait, just jumping in the pool, like full suits? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, not with suits on. Okay, good. <laughs> that led us to um, Repo Man, which uh, was, um, yeah, it was a, a movie that, uh, that Emilio, or excuse me, yeah, and that Emilio was in and that uh, Ramon had a chance to get us a chance to, to, to do a cameo deal in it. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, so for people who have not seen Repo Man, the Untouchables play, what, what would you say, what would you define, what were your characters called? <laughs> <laughs> we were a band and we were a band and we just got back from rehearsal and we came to my grandma's house and that's when we met Matt Otto, who was the repo man. She said that Matt Otto was gonna repossess the car although he could, what did you do with the money? So we gave him like uh, some some stern looks and he felt uncomfortable and he left and then we jacked up the car because we knew he was there and he, he wasn't able, and so we pulled him out and there was a director's cut and uh, in the director's cut, we were able to beat him up. And one of the next scenes, he was uh, in the hospital in traction. <laughs> Alex, Alex Cox was the director. And this is an interesting fact is that um, Michael Nesbitt was the producer. 
Did you guys have some relationship with Michael Nesmith? I, th- I think I heard that. No, well, Peter Torkelson was my teacher back in uh, ninth grade. He was my math teacher and uh, music teacher at the small school that I went to in Santa Monica, private school. And uh, we had a, a, a good relationship. We would hang out and do stuff after, after uh, school and stuff like that. So. Michael Nesmith seems like a weird connection for Repo Man, which was such a like punk rock indie movie at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep, I thought so too. The Repo Man was the first film that you guys did, right? Yeah, and we also we did a couple others after that. So I know that I've seen one other. What was the one? It was like a college thing, and you guys played. I think the general. Yeah, it was a. Uh, was it Bachelor Party? I think it's called. Yeah, that. I think that's what it was. <laughs> we also did another gig uh, movie called um, Surf Two, and we played a dance beat on the beach. Yeah. I could not find that one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a spoof on Frankie Valli or uh, Frankie Avalon, excuse me, movie uh, and Annette Funicello. How was it filming these uh, these scenes? It was fun. It was cool. Didn't know what to expect. You know, we'd just go and suit up and come down there and they would just tell us, just do this and play this or, you know, look at this guy or come in here and just kind of be yourself. But what was cool about Repo Man was we got a chance to ride our scooters around and some scenes downtown and stuff like that. So you'll see my Lambretta SX200 out there and my brother and Clyde and Jerry and all of us on scooters. I think Ripple Man like always kind of tickles me because you guys are you guys are meant to be seen as kind of mean or intimidating, but you guys are like such nice guys. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it was I think it was tough to get into the character. I and I wasn't sure that I was giving him what he wanted at first. So then he kind of focused uh, Alex focused on Jerry and Jerry has a, a kind of an intimidating look about him, so he was able to incorporate that into the movie yeah but jerry's a nice guy though in real life yeah, yeah. oh yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs> so your time with ramon comes to an end right around repo man right something like that yeah pretty much i got to say we also did a couple rap parties um and we did one for howard the duck oh wow <laughs> <laughs> we played uh at the I think it was the Beverly Hilton. Yeah, they had the rap party there. What was that? Is so weird. Like, <laughs> what was that like? That was like one of the biggest bombs, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> right. It so was what, a, what, like a big Hollywood flop. Yeah, it was. It was interesting. There was a lot of people there, and it was uh, real flashy. You know, um, they were hoping for big things, but it was fun to be able to to play to different crowds you know that was interesting and we were well received and i think they paid us pretty good so that that made it all worth it you know? was there any howard the duck themed um decorations yeah for the party? yeah and i think they had like the mascot guy walking around in the <laughs> <laughs> i loved that movie as a kid oh, i couldn't i could not understand as a kid like that that movie had flopped because i watched it so many times mm, yeah yeah same i know but i think because we of our age it was cool but i think older people who were like fans of the comic i think that's what the problem was right oh yeah yeah i think it really let them down they were expecting something totally different than what was portrayed 
does a rap party like i just imagine a band playing and people doing other stuff do they actually pay attention to you and dance and stuff um there was a small dance crowd dancing but yeah people would have their hors d'oeuvre trays and plates and they're walking around it's like uh trying to rub elbows with producers and stuff like that they, you know secondary thing i guess was the entertainment so after ramon you had a david was david lumian next as your next manager no john switzer oh I yeah think. that's right yeah mm-hmm. who was a um a friend from beverly hills high who we knew um and he he you know we he helped us out i'd have to say i don't know we didn't go that far with him but uh he was a, a good guy he didn't have any experience you know as far as booking gigs or anything like that so it didn't it didn't last long but did you know david before he started managing for you yeah i knew him from uh from anti-nuclear groups that he was doing and um we we um we had some mutual friends and stuff so yeah um and he also was not a manager, but he put, he promoted um, kind of these anti-nuclear events and shows and rallies and stuff. So we felt that we could trust him. You know what I mean? It was kind of like uh, there was it was it was kind of a kind of a dicey time trying to get established yet not get taken advantage of and not really wanting to promote ourselves so that we could just focus on doing the music and having fun with that and writing new songs and stuff, creating that. So never really wanted to get into the business side of it as long as we could find someone that we could trust and who could continue to give us gigs and so forth. We, I guess we felt we were all right. Yeah. He's it's, it seems to me like a lot of, a lot of momentum happened once David was in as the manager. Yeah, that's it. Really, things started to happen. He uh, came up with the idea of starting the fanzine, um, Twist and Twist Records, so Twist Magazine. Twist Magazine, yeah. So Twist Magazine was basically a mod sort of theme magazine, right? Yeah. And then right. he put you guys on the cover for the premiere issue. Right. Exactly. And then he'd do interviews and or have someone do interviews and photo photo shoots and things like that funny facts and stuff like that just as a way of promotion yeah so here's something he told me i'm curious i would love to get your take on this so he told me before the twist magazine article before you on the cover of twist he said that there was it was challenging to get the press interested in you guys because there was too much comparison to you guys and the two-tone bands and that he felt like if he could put you on the cover of twist and sort of tell your story in that way that it would the press would take interest in you guys in a different way and that he felt like that worked right yeah i think it did it kind of showed him that we were more varied um than the two-tone styled stuff we were playing uh we had definitely a more wide array of different musical styles because you guys weren't just doing sky you were also doing like soul and northern soul and all that stuff sure yeah yeah we're blending sort of rock and soul and funk funky stuff yeah um and even surf music which you know was anything that was fun that was danceable we were game to do it you know and and like 
you were mentioning Clyde Grimes. Um, we collaborated a lot and mostly he would come up with a riff and we would sit down and hash out some lyrics or I would come up with an idea and he'd say, oh, this could go with that. And, you know, so that's the, just the creative fun of it. It really started to bloom there, you know. Were you guys always sort of game to do, you know, from the very beginning to do just whatever sort of dance music or, or fun music you guys liked? Or did you have an intention to be a ska band? Um, no, it was always seemed to want to, for me, it seemed like we were going to be more than that or different from just that, more than just a ska band. So that's why we came up with this term, this mod ska band, so that we just blend it. We blended a couple of different sounds together and uh, came up with our own deal, you know. And that's why I guess, I don't know, people couldn't really quite pigeonhole it. And I know that later on when we signed with MCA Records after with Stiff and all that, um, they didn't really know what to do with us. You know, they didn't, they, our original, they were like, well, we don't really hear your originals being commercial enough to take off. And, Gerald Busby was the A&R guy at the time. He was known for going for the soul. So he did remixes of some of the songs that we had already released, but he wanted us to play stuff from their old catalog, like there's a, um, stuff from songwriters from that. We like, well, no, we're an original band. We really want to play our own original music. But that was kind of a conflict for us, although we signed with them. And there, they breached the contract. They were supposed to release a record that year, and every year subsequently, they wouldn't. Um, so we were out on tour playing music, the new originals that we created that no one was able to hear on the radio or purchase. Since you guys were playing ska and reggae and this sort of northern soul kind of stuff, but they were trying to determine if you were you know, I guess a rock band or a R&B band, which was more of the modern type stuff. And you guys weren't really either of those things. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we tried our hand at some funk stuff, you know, and we, when we went on tour with Sheila E and uh, we, we played back here in LA, we played three nights with, uh, we opened for Sheila, then it was Morris Day in the Time and Prince in the Revolution. And that was a really great time and a great show. But um, we we were a different band in that genre as well, of course. So that's kind of when, you know, I don't know. We we were sort of still trying to find our our deal and see what 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 we could, you know, record that would sell some records, you know, I guess. Um, and so anyway, I, I was I'm fine. I love just creating music and being a live band myself, but. Some of the other guys got frustrated and, and it was a hard time for sure. You know, I have to say defining the untouchables, we changed members quite a few times. And some of the first changes were the toughest because we started in with a gritty garage band style, you know, and my brother and um, I mentioned Evan Long and, and Terry Ellswitz they those guys kind of moved out and moved on um one of the hardest things was having my brother leave the band but it was something that was necessary if we were going to progress you know so um Kane became our bass player and Herman was not 
still I have to say there's a bit of a riff in in our relationship because of it, but that was something at the time that we felt we needed to do, you know. You mentioned playing with Prince. Didn't he come up to you after a show and say something? Yeah, yeah. After our show, we were uh, we just came off and we were going down there's downstairs and like a tunnel back to the green room to um Universal Amphitheater and I heard Hey, you teens. And I look over and I could I didn't see where the voice came from. And then I looked down and it was Prince. And he was doing <laughs> our, our little dance move, our signature Eugene symbol. And uh and that that was really shocking to me. <laughs> and and it was cool. It was a, a nice kind of pat on the back, you know. That must have been amazing because he always seemed to me like he's just like kind of above everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely was. And for him to give a stamp of approval to our, our songs, that was uh, I mean, a nice, a good feeling, you know. Definitely, I always respect him for sure, his musicianship. And he put on some of the most amazing shows. I was just watching from the wings and seeing him perform and, and those shows. And I just was mesmerized, you know. Just back a little bit when David was um, first kind of your manager and yeah, I know you did a few singles, but then Live and Let Dance. Yeah, it was an EP, but it was a like a big, big album. Yeah, full length. Sure. Yeah, big record for us. Yeah. yeah. At the level you guys were, it blew up because of um, Free Yourself, right? Yeah, Free Yourself. We, um, we were able to get, uh, well, David knew some technical people, some some videographers and some artists, Tina Sylvie and Frank Mangiani and others, Frank uh, Gargani, excuse me, and um, some other creative people who were here, um, artistic, and they we wanted to do a, a video and we got together some money, but we didn't have much and they all kind of did it on spec, you know, kind of just to help us out. So we recorded, um, this video for the song for yourself it's a, a, a kind of a new style for the time i guess and um it got regular rotation on mtv and that song and that video were voted best independent video of 1983 i want to say by billboard magazine that was cool receiving that award. Um, I've always was a, a big fan of Steely Dan. They were one of my favorites growing up and um, I had all the records and played them all over and over. And Walter Becker and David Fagan and Stone Baxter were there to present this award to us, which was pretty cool. So this was the part of the story that's always weird to me. And I think this says a lot about the labels in the eighties. You guys, had a lot of success with Free Yourself and the video and Live and Let Dance as an independent release. Mm -hmm. And yet you didn't have, the labels weren't interested in you guys. No, not not until um, Dave Robinson from Stiff Records. He was the, the main man at Stiff Records and part of Island subsidiary in England. He saw it and I guess he contacted Dave um, from England and said, I want to come out there. I want to see them. and meet them and and eventually did and signed us to a deal with them and we went out to london and played some shows and signed and then went to holland to record our first full-length album what was it like when you flew into england and now 
Jerry told me there was like posters and stuff of you guys. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there was posters for our show, our upcoming show. It was, uh, you, you know, coming from the airport, we looked over and you could see, you know, the, the logo with Clyde, the uh, kind of infamous uh, Untouchables symbol, and uh, talked about our upcoming show at Dingwalls, which was this really, really small hole in the wall club in London. That's uh, was Dave's idea to book us in this club that only, I don't know, maybe a hundred or 150 people could get into. And they would create such a buzz that uh, that the next time we played there, you know, we play a little bit bigger venue, but um, we played that show at Dingwalls and it was so crowded. There was people outside just trying to get in that couldn't, you know, and uh, that, that was a pretty interesting tactic. Now, what you guys did, the, the Northern Soul element of Untouchables, that's something that's pretty popular in England. So that, did, did you feel like that stuff went over well better in England than it did here in the U.S.? In the yes, it really did. Um, they dug like City Gent and, uh, you know, um, Wild Child and those, those songs. Yeah, uh, it really uh, dug that kind of, even for yourself, you know, the, the soul sound of that. and. Um, yeah, it, it definitely did. It went over big. Um, I guess our uh, our record when it was released and for yourself, the single went to twenty six on the BBC charts, and that was pretty pretty phenomenal. The ska stuff, though, because that's that was a time after the ska had already sort of went out of fashion. Did, were, were people interested in your ska stuff in England at that time? Yeah, let's see. You know, we were playing some sort of reggae, and yeah, you know, the ska for us there wasn't as popular as as it was out here. You're right. Um, never really put it that way, but pretty much they wanted to hear more of the American sound that we had. You know, yes. You guys were away from LA for I, I want to say what eight months. Yeah, eight months. Mm -hmm. So you went and you recorded the album in Holland. Jerry Dammers, he recorded one of the songs with you? He did, yeah. He recorded a song, produced it, um, and we recorded it in a place called Swarm Studios. And there was an, a Studio A and a Studio B, and the firm was in Studio B. Um, and we got a chance to, to meet those guys, and that was pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, uh, Jerry Dammers produced one of our tunes, and that was really amazing. What was he like to work with? He's fun. He's fun, um, real witty, um, clever, uh, intelligent, and very musical. So that the whole time you were there, was it just um, recording the album? Were you guys also touring out there? Yeah, we would break away and tour. We, um, but when we went to Holland, we focused on the, the album for. I want to say maybe four weeks or so, three and a half, four weeks um, in this place called Sound Push Studio in Hilversum, Holland, outside of Amsterdam. Really, really beautiful place. Stuart Levine, who used to be a producer and uh, he was a horn player for the Crusaders, was, uh, was chosen to be our producer for the album. Hmm. It's interesting. But he had great horn arrangements, and that that was really helpful for us. You know? So was this Wild Child, or was this? I get a little confused about this. 
Yeah, that was Wild Child. That was Wild Child. Child. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was recorded for Stiff. Yeah. But it also was released on MCA. Yes, and also released here in the U.S. on MCA. But just distributed, I should say, I guess. Yeah. Was it released in the U.S. at the same time, or did that come later? It was later, yeah. And one thing about Stiff, um, they're, they're really creative about um, making picture discs and different uh, promotional pieces. So a single would be released, and they would make these limited pressing records, you know, these vinyls that were special collector's editions, you know. No. Pretty cool. I have a couple of them still. Yeah, David Robinson is real creative and very genius. Brilliant, I have to say. So you guys were kind of dealing with Stiff, though, as they were folding or something like that? Was that the issue with Stiff? Yeah, seems that way. They were definitely downsizing I don't, and, and eventually did fold, yeah. Because it seemed like they were a good fit for you guys, but... Or did you, did you feel like they were a good fit? I did. I did. They were definitely um, a smaller label and could pay attention to us and they're definitely creative. And we, I feel like we really were able to work well with them, for sure. And when they folded, you guys were sort of like handed over to MCA. Is that kind of the, the correct way to say it? Seemed like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which was like being handed over to the wolves, you know. <laughs> So you didn't feel like they got you, right? No, not at all. It was a whole different thing. And so, like I, I mentioned earlier on, we were shelved by MCA. And I'm not sure why they had any interest in us at all, but they didn't really show that they, they wanted us on their label. Um, they wanted a, a different version of us or to recreate us in a different way, which wasn't, wasn't us at all. So and that didn't work out. And so um, they breached the contract and we were able eventually after two years to get off. Um, then we signed with Enigma Records, which is a small label here. And um, Don was, Don, Don and Dave was, were, did produced the record, the next one for us. And a guy, Arthur Barrows, who used to be part of Frank Zappa's band. So definitely a lot of different creativity. Um, and I have to say that our, our music style definitely changed you know, in that time. How did it change? What, what type of music were you leaning towards at that time? It seemed to go back to more new wavy, um, I don't know how to, how to describe it, Art, artsy. <laughs> <laughs> um, less funk and dancey. Right. I would imagine um, we had a couple reggae, more reg, more reggae-ish tunes. Yeah, it didn't didn't really hit, you know. While you were working with MCA, I know that you they were you guys were bringing in songs and they were saying no. Do you recall how many songs you presented to them? That over basically... over forty, more like sixty different wow. songs. Yeah. Wow. But there was one song I remember Jerry told me about that was uh, you guys were really into that they shelf that was called uh i think it was called quit your job or something like that yeah yeah and that was a an anti-reagan song right yeah that's right mm-hmm. <laughs> so so yeah more political stuff and they yeah they were not so into that i've heard about quit your job a few times but like what did it sound like musically 
Yeah, there was a, a strong hook um, and uh, a, a nice backbeat. Um, I remember a strong chorus as well, uh, like a kind of chanting, um, yeah, like a under chant like a song. And it could have been could have been good, done right with the right producer, I think. Did you guys feel like they really were reacting to the politics of the songs or the, that song? Yeah, yeah. Put, put, putting off. Yeah, they were they were they were a bit put off by that. And not sure that yeah, they definitely didn't like that. Um, like I said, the the A and R guy who we, we were working with was one who was strictly R and B and uh punk oriented and wasn't getting our, our creative sound at all. I guess you didn't have a whole lot of 80s R&B that was saying, uh, telling Reagan to quit his job. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing like that. Yeah. So that would have been kind of weird, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, so Josh Harris, our keyboard player, he um, is very creative and he, he wrote um, What's Gone Wrong and a lot of others. And uh, at that time, we sort of leaned into him um, and his style, and we're hoping that they would hear something that um, that he created. Also, our drummer Glenn Simmons um, had a lot of musical uh, um, expertise in his background and so forth. And for all of us to come together and put our heads together and try to create, a, we we had such varied sound songs that. It kind of was a, a mix match of all kind of different stuff. And I think that really kind of threw them, you know. I feel like What's Gone Wrong is like, I don't know if I would say it's my favorite song. I mean, it's definitely one of my favorite songs of Untouchables, but it was seemed like the most pop oriented song that you guys ever made. We were touring with UB40 one time and we were, we, we played that song for Soundcheck and, uh, they approached David Lumian and they they wanted they approached our management and they wanted to buy the song. <laughs> so you guys said no because you thought it was your your shot at being a a, a single. Yeah, exactly. We thought perhaps this is one that could uh, could could do it for us. I mean, it sounds like it could have been even like you know just the way it's recorded as it exists in history. I can hear it as though it were a single. We did a few different versions, you know, the original with Josh singing and later with Rooster, Tony, um, Anthony Rooster, Drew, we sang a version of it. Um, and, I, you know, we did a, we did do a video for it. Yeah. It just didn't, didn't really cross over like we had hoped, I guess. Did it chart at all? Yeah, I'm not sure where it landed in the charts. And that's probably like at the time you're saying Stiff was disbanding and breaking up. And I think that had a lot to do with uh, the amount of push that they put into it. It was kind of like our, our last one that we did there in England, I think, our last music video. And uh, I don't know how much they really were behind it or not. So there was a mod scene that existed already before you guys were really going and, and that scooter rallies and stuff, but you guys were kind of the reason why it became so big, would you say, in L.A. for a while? Yeah, we helped focus it, you know. Um, there was kids, they were, they were very factioned, you know. There were kids in San Diego, there were kids in Poway, there were the mods in Anaheim and Orange County, there were the, the mods in Temple City, you know. Um, we were from LA and so gave it more of a 
figurehead, you know, when we could get together. We did uh, long rides to shows down in San Diego and we would just get a group of, of scooters and we would pick up momentum all the way from Orange County. We'd stop over at someone's house and hang out and then they, 20 more, 30 more scooters would continue on the ride and we'd go and finish up in San Diego where we played some shows. And uh, that was always fun, always a great time, you know. House parties all the way down, you know, <laughs> stopping off at different people's places. So it'd be an all-day sort of endeavor, getting down there. Yeah, all day, all night, and get there like the next day. Kind of <laughs> Were you guys like really into your scooters to the point of like constantly upgrading them and constantly cleaning them and stuff like that? Well, yeah, we kept them clean. Um, we didn't have much money, you know, so the parts that we would get, we'd, we'd try to find here or there and always trying to do something creative with what we had for sure. What sort of hacks do you remember for, for um, doing something cool that didn't cost a lot of money? I got some air horns from, um, what is that place, uh, Pet Boys, and uh, attached them to my the, the grill of my scooter um, and go to like a Pet Boys and get different mirrors and bike mirrors and all that and add a sissy bar and antennas and, you know, like that, so put some flags on the antennas and, you know, get a union jack and an American flag and cross the antennas and put cable ties on them so we hold it in, that kind of thing. I love there's, um, of the photos I used of you guys in my book, the one with you and Jerry on your scooters, it's got to be one of my favorites in the book. Where did you say that was Tower Records? Yeah, Tower Records on Sunset. It was uh, after the jam had played the night before at a place called Perkins Palace in Pasadena. And uh, then that day, um, the next day, they had a record signing party at Tower Records. And we went there. My scooter was pretty new then. It was just stark white. Um, and so it was before I got really creative with it. Later, we have some promo um, pictures with uh, down at Venice Beach Canals. We played a, we played a party for a, a dog named Roberta, and we took some promo pictures outside this woman's house. Who, um, she used to be uh, a, a great friend of Dave's, and she had a house on the canals, and she had parties there, and so she had a party for her dog. What type of a dog was it? A uh, German Shepherd. Kind of a, a, a mutt, though, kind of mixed with, I don't know what. Your resume of shows you've played are so all over the place. You played uh, for Charlie Sheen's birthday in Malibu, and you also played a, a dog's birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> and and one of, uh, then we got a chance to play Glastonbury Festival, and we played, uh, we played, we opened for Midnight Oil and Style oh, nice. Council. Yeah, 1985. So we, we played our set and then we went to a place called Torquay, which is a, a coastal town. And we played another show that night. Do you like doing the, the back-to-back shows like that or did you did you back then? You know, it, it was what was scheduled. Um, I would have loved to hang out at Glastonbury all day yeah. and see, I didn't get a chance to see Style Council, although Weller and them were backstage and stuff, which was really cool, but we didn't get a chance to check out their set at all. So, but I guess we we wanted to maximize our time. When we played in uh, Japan, we played uh, 
think six six shows and seven nights. Nice. We played uh, two shows in in Tokyo. Then we took the bullet train to Kyoto and Osaka, and we just we were hitting every place we could as quick as we could and get to the next gig. You know. So I'm guessing most of these venues then had a, a backline. So you're just bringing your instruments. Yeah, they did have a backline, and we finished up at this place called Parco, which was a, uh, I guess um it was like a high rise. Um, department store but on the top floors they had this amphitheater inside and it was maybe I don't know 800 seat or maybe a, maybe a thousand seat amphitheater inside this place called Parco in Tokyo and what was really cool was the kids knew uh, the words to our songs in Japanese and they were singing along with us wow nice I mean if you hadn't lived that that the whole scenario you just described sounds like a dream. <laughs> yeah, it, it was for us. I mean, we had no idea, you know, we just got off the plane and went and did the gig and, and that, you know, it was like, it was all a surprise, you know, um, but there was this underground subculture and all these places, you know, and it was, it's great to be able to provide a backdrop and dance music and mosaic for kids to have fun. And that's all what the Untouchables ever hoped to be, you know, and that's what really, if, when it ever stopped being fun, it's when it's time to stop, you know. There was that period of time where you guys were, your music was getting shelved and then things kind of stalled for a while. And that's eventually what led to you losing interest in the band. Yeah, I, you know, and bad choices of mine for sure as well, I have to say. Um, so just had to get away for quite a while. And I you know that ended up being, I don't know, is it 15, 18 years or something without playing with those guys? But then many years ago, getting back together and jamming again with them and having fun with it. How does it feel getting back into the room with those guys and, and playing music? It's great, you know, especially when we when not just being in a room playing with them, but being on yeah. stage is the same for me. It's like, uh, it just kind of clicks in this uh, intuitive thing, you know? Um, and it's funny, I can remember some of our very first shows, I, would, I was so scared and nervous, I would hide behind the amps. And, and they would, my brother and the guys would say, get out there, they want to see who's singing. And I'd say, I don't want to show them, I'm scared. I'll just stay back here and <laughs> And then, you know, the more I got out and started to do it and dance and be the front guy or whatever, the more fun it became and the more fun the crowd had. So that's kind of just spurred it all on, you know. And to this day, it just kind of kicks in whenever we start our set. I mean, we used to start our set with a, a open up with green onions. And that kind of was like a, a sound check. And the guys would just have this groove and they would fill in this, uh, you know, this vamp. You know, and then Jerry and I would be backstage while they were doing that, and then they would start the first song of the general, and we'd pop in and we'd just light the place up, you know, and that's it's just it's exciting to do it, to have a live show, you know. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the next one. From your guys' early years, somewhere in like 83 or I don't know, somewhere around there, I had found this video clip of like a local TV show doing a profile on you guys. And 
It was really fascinating to me because the angle was that you guys were a positive band and you were a positive influence on the kids, which is like you never kind of see that angle with like parent oriented shows. It's always like this band is scary. This band's going <laughs> to ruin your kid. But it was like, these guys are great. These guys are just going <laughs> to really good influence on your kids. It was the strange thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. I think was that um, I on LA with Chuck Henry, perhaps. I, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was cool. Yeah, he was on the other night. I was watching the show. He does the newscasting now, and it took me back. I was thinking about it last week about that. Um, yes, and I'll I'll say that'll segue to this. Um, my parents, like I said, we used to play in the, and and create music and play in our attic, right? And my dad was a dentist. He put himself through school at Howard University and became a dentist and started his own practice and all that. And he, I know he wanted me to, to, to take over. He wanted me to be, you know, a, a professional kind of man. And kind of just wasn't in the cards for me. So he was a little bit um, disappointed when my brother and I got into, you know, the musical career, I should say. Um, but on their 50th anniversary, my mom and dad, um, we, I was still living at my dad's mom's house and my brother as well. They, uh, we invited them, we had a show at the Roxy and they were able to come and they were in their tux and so forth. And Mario provided the uh, balcony just for them. And that gave them a steak dinner and champagne and all that. And they were able to watch our set from up there. And afterwards, um, all the kids in the crowd came up to them and said happy anniversary and they were just real cordial and my mom and dad were just really blown away by how nice and kind everyone was to them and my dad and mom they wrote me a and then my brother a note and they were very um, they were so proud he told me he was so proud of uh of, of what we were doing and um he was surprised to be proud because he didn't think he was going to enjoy it at all but after meeting all the people and everyone being so nice, he was uh, he was very happy um, that we were choosing to do something that we enjoyed and that uh, that brought joy to others. So that was something real special. You guys were bringing positivity, like everything about what you guys did was positive. Exactly. Yeah, I always felt like when we went on tour, I felt like an ambassador of goodwill. That if I could, you know, so people in Germany a good time and and people in, in Ireland or England or wherever we were a good time that I was bringing unity and spreading the message of love and peace and and enjoyment and dance music you know that's that was was me up you know makes me uh, makes me real I just get still excited about it so thanks it's always been what it's always been about it's just in bringing people together it's definitely part of the magic of music, especially when it's channeled in that way. Fortunate to get to do it, you know. Not very many people get a chance, so I really, really value it and, and I appreciate it and grateful for that. And I think, like, you know, the last if the last year has taught us anything, I think that living without it is pretty tough. Not having live music and not having that connection is, is just very, it wears on you quite a bit. Yes, no doubt. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, looking forward to being able to go back. And on that note, I heard that madness is coming to town. So I'm looking, I'm maybe going to go get a chance to see them. 
Yeah. We're going to play uh, up in San Francisco on like, I want to say April or May back in 2020. And obviously it got canceled. And then I think it got rescheduled for this year. And then it got rescheduled again for next year. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Oh, no. So they're not going to make the San Francisco? Huh? No, I think it's, I think that the whole tour got booked to next year. If I, I could be wrong, but that's what I heard. So, yeah. It's so crazy to think about like postponing a tour for like two years. <laughs> yeah, we used to love playing up there. We used to play quite a few gigs up in San Francisco. We played a, actually one of our first times. Well, we played independently up there our first times, but uh, we did a, a tour with X and we played Santa Barbara and we played up there at a place called the Warfield. And we played the CBT as well. Yeah. We, we were able to play the grand reopening of the Fillmore West, which was spectacular. Yeah, it was amazing. Were you guys headlining or did you guys play with somebody? We played with someone else and I can't remember who that was, but uh, we we once played with Gang of Four up there, um, which was pretty cool. We, we opened for them. Yeah, I can't remember who was the headliner on that gig. I would love to ask a little bit about your your job now, if if you don't mind talking about that. Yeah, I'm a I'm a prop master. Um, and what that is is uh, I deal with the action props or the hand props, whatever actors touch and use in a scene. Um, I've been doing it now for thirty years. Um, I've done over twenty pictures with Adam Sandler and a lot of others. I've got a chance to work with uh, Mel Gibson and. Uh, on and on, Tom Cruise, uh, Jack Nicholson, um, but and then, so I did features for a long time, feature films, and but, uh, now I'm the last five seasons I've done this show called uh, This Is Us TV show, NBC show, and um, work here at Paramount Studios mostly, so it's nearby my house. We I live in Burbank, California. And um, it's a short drive to Hollywood every day. Um, I enjoy the creativity. So whatever actors touch, like watches, rings, guns, food, glasses, whatever they use in the scene, if it's creative, like computers or drawing uh, or eating, whatever, I, I reset it, I reload it, I keep the continuity pictures, uh, pictures for it so that things are right. If we have to reshoot a scene or come back to something, we can reset it. Do you have to actually make make any of the props? I'm not really making them. I I like make them work on the set. So we'll prep it. We'll um, we have things manufactured or promoted or we rent stuff to use, and then we use it for the scenes. I work the set with it, so I like to be pretty creative. I like you know. Something needs to be changed. I can do that and make it work for the actors, and so that's what I do. Are you the person or part of the department that selects which props get used? Yeah, we have show and tells with the directors and the writers, and we do uh, we do what's called um, like a walkthrough, and they'll check out stuff, and we'll show them different options and different uh, variations and so forth, and, and we'll have multiples of things so that they can, you know. If, if something breaks, there used to be a saying, if you have one, you have none. So we have to, try to have backups. <laughs> <laughs> things go wrong sometimes, you know. 
Do you remember a particular time when anything broke on a set that was interesting? Well, I did a picture called Six Days, Seven Nights with Harrison Ford and Anne Heche, and we were shooting in um, Hawaii. We shot the whole thing on uh, Hawaii. Um, there was a scene, some scenes where we were filming at night on the beach and there were coconuts that he, so his plane crashed and they were out um, in, uh, stranded on, on an island, supposedly with Tahiti, but it was really um, Hawaii. Um, so we had gotten these coconuts and he was making this drink and he supposedly speared a uh, peacock and they were like, <laughs> they were uh, roasting it over spits. So we had turkey legs and uh, we, we, got, we, we got through the scene quite a few times. I don't know if you're familiar with the filming um, process, but it often takes many different takes and we'll do different angles. And so uh, we, we ran out of these turkey legs and we had to try to send out to find more, but it was at 2 a.m. and all the places were closed. And this was a real rem remote beach, like 45 minutes over a hill to get to it. Um, so we tried to find, all we could find was chicken. So we, we tried to toothpick them together to make it look like a larger amount <laughs> of, of poultry. <laughs> and that was uh, a kind of a letdown. And um, Ivan Reitman was the director and he was not a nice guy. So he was really upset about that. And also the coconut drink, we, um, we used the gourd and we put it in, we shot like the Friday night we were to use it again Saturday and we had um, we put them in this fridge on refrigerator on the truck on our prop trailer we used to have a 48 foot trailer and we kept it plugged in so when we got there on Monday we start to set things up and we get these things out and they had turned totally different color and they got all mushy in the fridge and uh, oh, we tried no. to send out the final but it wasn't like coconut season it's like weird they, they only fall during certain seasons and they're not like it this ripe in the trees at that time of year it wasn't so anyway that was tough we had to try to paint it <laughs> paint didn't really adhere to these kind of moist moldy coconuts gourds <laughs> so that was, those were two times on that one picture that uh, it really kind of went south for us i oddly enough i studied film in college and then I did intern on a film. It was an indie film that we shot up here in San Jose. And uh, the prop, the, the students that went into props for the for the uh, internship, I swear they were the artsiest. All of my peers, they were the artsiest ones. And uh, the the head of props was like, he was a really interesting and creative guy. But I swear he had just like meltdowns like every other day, just over. <laughs> just over everything not quite going right and, and just having to find him and everything like fell on his shoulder you know mm, sure so yeah. a lot of times i have to try to figure out what could possibly go wrong and be prepared for that beforehand you know what i mean so that's kind of like the way to not be stressed out is to like think of all the the, the negative scenarios and make sure you have them all covered so that if that happens then you can do this or if this happens then i can do that you know so that's and i guess i'm pretty good at it they keep asking me back and i've been doing it for quite a while so and i'm fortunate to work with these people you know there's a lot of creative people and i really enjoy what i like is i feel like 
when I do a good job, it helps the actors to do a good job. And if I can make their job easy, then that my job is done well, you know? I feel like you told me once that you are have like a part-time cover band that you do with Adam Sandler. Yeah, we, we did. I haven't played in, it's been almost four, four years, I guess, since we did a gig. Um, but yeah, we, we do. And it's all so much fun. And Sandler, we have the Sandman Jam Band and they're great musicians, you know. Who else is in that band? Um, a, a guy, Wadi Wachtel, is our, our lead guitar player. And he's kind of our band leader besides Sandler. Um, we have a guy that just passed away, uh, Don Heffington, is a pretty famous drummer who played with everyone from Tom Petty to Gosh, there's just a lot of different people play with us. Uh, this guy who does scores on the films is um, Rupert Gregson. He's um, he's a brilliant uh, keyboard player. Um, this guy Elmo Weber's another keyboard player. Yeah, there's just like probably 10, 10 musicians that we get a chance to do. And one thing that's cool with Sandler, he knows a lot of different musicians. We played with every, I mean, Deborah Harry has come up and we've done three songs with her. And uh, uh, gosh, who else? Just so many different people. Um, Mike, Mark Mothersbaugh from, from uh, Evo. Um, Man, I can't even think of all of them, but I guess there's probably, there's been a hundred, Billy Idol, uh, um, it's, uh, Eddie Money, um, they've all come and done, you know, we've done some of their songs with them. And then, then we'll, like, a guest artist will come up, we'll do three songs, and then we'll do a couple other covers, like we'll do The Who, Bob O'Reilly, or we'll do, uh, you know, Queen song or whatever, you know. Another one rides the bus or like the Marley stuff, and you know, it's just a lot of fun. What are what are the gigs you play? Are these like big gigs or are these like parties or what? Yeah, um, parties mostly. Um, he rents out a couple venues here for like uh, his holiday parties. This one we do called the it's a place down the street from me actually called Pickwick Center. There's a bowling alley and an ice ice skating rink, and there's a there's a video and a pinball arcade, and, um, and there's stuff for kids, and then there's and then there's the ballroom where we have the the stage set up. Um, really, really great. Um, he's got great musical producers that, that work work with us. So this guy, Brooks Arthur, who is uh, one of the pioneers in music. Um, yeah, I, just a lot of different people. I can't even begin to mention them all. When I watched Adam Sandler's uh, Netflix special he did, where it was like clips of his uh, comedy, a lot of it was musical stuff. Yes. Um, not only did I like really like that a lot, it was really funny, but I could really tell at that when I watched that he is like deeply into music because there were so many jokes that I feel like were for musicians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. He's, 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 he's so creative. He's just, uh, he's brilliant really. And such a, a great, um, personable man, you know, we're, uh, our, our families, our friends, and he's, uh, I'd have to say 
I feel like we're, we're, we're part of the same family for sure. But he's like um, a huge music fan then from your experience? Yes, definitely. No doubt. Is he familiar with the Untouchables? Yeah. Uh-huh. For sure. Does he, does he like, like the Untouchables? And um, yeah. <laughs> Scott? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's, he's heard us. I don't know that he's been to any of our gigs really, but. I guess what we're trying to find out is if Adam S. Sandler likes Scott. Um, I'm sure he does. He likes all type of music. Family is um, he's got deep soul for sure. Yeah. yeah. Now he seems like a, he seems like a, just a nice, like uh, sincere guy. Mm-hmm. He definitely yeah. is. And fun. He's a lot of fun. And so now nowadays, um, oh yeah, you said already you're working on This Is Us is kind of your current gig. And we're finishing the 16th episode of this fifth season, which we just started the fifth, the 16th today, and. That'll finish this season, and uh, and we'll take a hiatus and come back and do 20 more. Each season, we usually do 18 episodes, but because of COVID this year, we started late, so we're going to only do 16, and then we'll do 20, and that should be the finale um, season. I guess the showrunner, the writer-producer, Dan Fogelman, he like arced for six seasons, and um, luckily, I guess luckily, or um natively it hit and um nbc and who is now uh disney run by disney and fox they they really wanted uh to just continue just to do that we'll see if they do another one i know that they're interested they're excited it's one i guess they're their top dramas so one thing i find interesting and because you told me this once um is the sort of code of covid protocol I think you told me what that they basically everyone on the set had to get tested three times a week. Yeah, three times a week. In fact, I tested today. Um, we test everyone who's in what they call the A zone group, um, and I'm a A H is like the hazard, um, so I can be like right with the actors and I can prepare the food and drinks and whatever. I've had two vaccine shots. Um, already Pfizer so but we make we test three times a week yeah I've had in during the during the pandemic I've had been tested twice and I found it to be an extremely unpleasant experience (laughs) okay did you have the nose swab then yes okay no we we get ours in the mouth so they go on our cheeks and then back in the back of our throat with a big swab it's not, it, I'm sure it's not as bad. I've never had a, a nose swab, but um, the one that, the back of the throat, sometimes they'll jab you pretty good and I feel kind of raw in there, mm-hmm. but um, that would really be unpleasant to go deep into my sinuses. I wouldn't enjoy that. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you told me three times a week, I was like, oh my God, because yeah. the first time I had it, I didn't quite know what to expect and it was horrible. Mm-hmm. The second time I did it, I knew what to expect, so it was even worse. Yeah, you're on guard. Huh? <laughs> yeah, because they so they go they go in your nose just beyond the point where you can handle it. Yeah. So it's wow. it's like and it it just makes your eyes instantly cry. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it's horrible. So have you been vaccinated, Aaron? I'm I'm fully vaccinated. Yeah. Okay, I, uh, well. mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I got mine too. I think I'm Pfizer also. What did you get, Darren? I'm Moderna. Moderna. Uh-huh. Okay. Did you have any reaction? Um, some people on the set have been having some reactions. To oh yeah, yeah. It was terrible. 
it was not i mean it's fine you know it's like you you know that it's the vaccine and you know that you know also feel good that you know you feel the relief that you have it but um still the first day my wife and i we got it at the same time first day we both got it like nine in the morning we got home we like walked our dog and then it felt like we went on a hike it was we were like really tired just walking around the neighborhood and then we got home and we took a three-hour nap and then the next day we felt terrible we just felt achy everywhere and really tired and really really cranky and then the next day like halfway through the next day all of a sudden poof, feel better oh good just like just out of nowhere just like poof yeah (laughs) and like you said the the relief of knowing you know that you have had it is uh is is like the the thing to look forward to and feels feels okay you can deal with all the side effects of whatever that is right now did you get side effects um the first one just felt like i was punched in my arm the first day it didn't hurt but the next two days subsequently i was had a hard time really lifting my arm fully because it was so sore did you have pain in your armpit chuck no i didn't Hmm. you did no, my my wife did. She she had like inflamed lymph nodes. I I was fine. I'm I felt like bad that I felt so good. <laughs> <laughs> you like pretended to feel bad a little bit. But the second one, um, I felt uh, a little out of it. Like for days, I felt sort of off balance and a little um, dizzy, and uh, maybe like you know, it kind of felt like. Uh, a mild acid thing, acid trip or something, you know, it's like everything was a little bit off kilter for a couple of days. Yeah, I felt that too. Like not, not quite acid trip, but just a little, little foggy brain, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What a relief, man. So things are getting better, I have to say, and I'm hoping for more improvement around the, the nation and the world. So looking yeah. forward to the time we can get back to hugging each other and and playing shows and in tight sweaty clubs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I feel like you guys um were gonna head up here right before the pandemic. I feel like I remember there being and I know Jerry had like because he had the um kidney issues and that yes. was that got in the way but then I think yeah. but then COVID happened because I was I was like uh, I was gonna see you guys and I was really excited about that. Yeah, um, we did have a bunch of gigs lined up, and that that all kind of went to the wayside. I know there's a couple things coming up that I heard about today, actually. So um, I think in uh, September we'll be playing this thing with Fishbone and quite a lot of other ska bands down in um, San Pedro called the Hoedown, SoCal Hoedown. Oh, fun. Yeah, I don't know the exact date offhand. I wish I sh- I should have that in front of me, but I'm not that professional, I guess. <laughs> but you'll be, able to, you'll be able to to know when it's coming well before it happens. It'll be advertising. September seems to be a date that everyone decided on. It's an I mean I'm sure there's like some like whole scientific reasoning behind it, but it just like all of a sudden like there's all these different festivals like scheduled for September specifically. Yeah, um, I guess they, they're hoping that things are, have a, a big positive change before then. Um, while we were talking, I pulled up this thing, and it says, uh, sell out productions September 18th in uh, San Pedro, SoCal Hoedown. So I guess that 
headlining band is horror pops i don't know them yep and uh face to face real big fish fishbone throw rag tsl tsol will be there um, really and us and others yeah didn't the singer from tsol die maybe maybe they have another guy oh, okay then three stages so it's a kind of a big gig nice i really hope that happens me too yeah this is all ages so hopefully uh this thing will happen maybe it was not last summer but the summer before last we played a a gig down at huntington beach and it was um the ska fest thing down there and fishbone was on the bill as well and um, that was a lot of fun hang out with those guys a bit you know we were talking about your scooters earlier what happened to your scooter oh i was hit on my scooter um i was taking my girlfriend to school at ucla in uh, broad daylight it was like 12 in the afternoon on a street called uh, ocean park and 14th street in uh, kind of santa monica and uh, a guy turned left and hit us and um i flew off i had a I used to have a one helmet, a full bell helmet, and I would wear that when I rode, but this was back in 1983. Yeah, 83. And um, so when she was on, I would put it on her head. And uh, so I flew off and I hit a lamppost with my head, um, which must have been over 40 feet in the air. And saw the thing coming and tried to block it and just couldn't. And, um, my scooter was demolished and my girlfriend's leg got smashed in the bumper grill of this Jeep. Yeah. So that was the end of my scooter ride. And I haven't been on um, any motorized two wheel vehicle on the street since. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, I love that. It was a Lambretta SX 200. I would ride it. I mean, that was my only transportation and, I would ride on the freeway, I would ride in the rain, I rode, you know, long distances and um, it was it was a great scooter, but it's gone. What are you using for transportation now? Um, I have, we have a few cars. I have a family, I got four kids and a wife. So we have a minivan, we have two, we have a Ford Fusion and a Ford C-Max, a plug-in hybrid car. What type of minivan do you have? I have a minivan. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Honda Odyssey. Hell yeah, yeah. Honda Odyssey, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, things we've been uh, cross country a few times in it and camped out all over the place. It's been a great car. Yeah, I really miss having a band van. So having having the minivan is a is a nice compromise for me. Yeah, it's cool. Huh? Good. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.